I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Now, who likes cucumber? I do. 50, 50. I do. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we, shall we harvest one? Yeah. And then taste it? Yeah. yeah. So, should we do that? Yeah. At last, we've reached the end of July. The sun is still setting late in the evenings. Barbecues are cropping up left, right and centre. Our gardens are overflowing with colourful blooms. And our kids are out of school and on summer holiday. So, we'll avoid the leaf. So, yeah, so you're cutting the little stem bit. Well done, very good. It's quite big and heavy, isn't it? Um, Let me just see if we can find one that's... With the whole family around, we thought it was the perfect time to explore gardening with our little ones and reflect on our own memories of growing up in gardens, allotments and parks. My own connection to this theme is through my work at the RHS. I manage the Campaign for School Gardening, a national programme giving free resources and support to schools and youth groups to help them give outdoor opportunities to children and young people. And most of us understand how important gardening is for wellbeing, confidence and teamwork, and for developing a deeper sense of the natural world we live in. And so I'm excited to bring you this episode, giving you a little glimpse into the work I do on a daily basis and sharing the stories that have shaped some of our most loved gardeners and plants people. We'll be visiting the Hitchin Youth Allotment. You heard some of their students' voices at the beginning of the episode. Paul D, the founder, will share the story of the project as well as his top tips for growing fruit and veg with kids. Afterwards, Fiona Davison, RHS Head of Libraries and Exhibitions and a frequent host of the show, will recount the evolving history of the role that children have played in our gardens and how this relates to societal and cultural shifts. And finally, Roy Lancaster, who needs no introduction, divulges the tale of the epic plant discovery he made as a young boy in Lancashire, a discovery that propelled him into the world of horticulture. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Alana Karma. Creating the Apothecary Garden with my son gave me the opportunity to rediscover wonder through the eyes of a small child. He had no preconceived idea of what was a good plant or what was beautiful or what should be in a garden. To him, the nettle and the dandelion were as precious as, say, a lily or a rose. And he taught me to see nature as bountiful and to see the small scrubby patch of ground that we had as a place of possibility and magic. 
uh, as we dug and planted and as things grew and, and as things died, I got to learn alongside him and be witness to well, this amazing beauty that even the simplest so-called weed could hold. And his curiosity opened up the garden into this, this world of magic waiting to be explored. And I don't think I would have experienced the garden in the same way if I hadn't let him lead me into what it could hold. That was Victoria Bennett, the author of All My Wild Mothers. Victoria created an apothecary garden with her young son about 10 years ago, a project that was transformative for them both. It was healing, educational and magical. And she's not alone in this experience. For Paul D, a former government worker turned gardener and educator, learning to cultivate the earth was revolutionary. It changed the course of his life. And sharing this passion with kids was more fulfilling for him than he could ever have imagined. Paul started the Hitchin Youth Allotment Programme in 2016, where he works with local schools and youth groups to bring the joy of gardening to hundreds of children throughout the area. A few weeks ago, we stopped by the allotment for their last class of the summer. So this is your last one here for this year? So we're here on a real allotment site in Hitchin. It's one of about sort of six allotment sites that we have, and this is the home of the Hitchin Youth Allotment. Right, so come down, we'll just pop your stuff into the shed. So we don't see ourselves as a formal horticulture course. It's not really about that. What it's about is trying to build an interest, awaken an interest, I suppose, amongst young people who might not be able to experience this otherwise, of gardening, growing their own food, being outside, being in touch with the external environment. But what we also find is it builds other skills as well. You know, we build things like sort of numeracy into what we're doing, for example, where we're sort of counting out numbers of plants and working out the area that we have to plant up. So you keep a count. If we, if we basically pick about six... Three, four, there you go. five... Uh, can you reach this one? But even things like building the children's confidence... So, for example, for the older students, we often um, point them as team captains, where they can, you know, coach some of the younger pupils as well. It wasn't really till we started that we started to kind of really see the kind of, you know, the enormous potential that the allotment could have. Shall we have a look if we can see if there are any melons growing? Yeah. Melons? Melons? They're not ready to harvest yet, but we might find some little dinky ones. So, in terms of what works well. So uh, we grow melons in our polytunnel. The children are very, very enthusiastic about the melons. So when it comes to early September, there's a fantastic experience when they come along where we open the polytunnel door and the amazing scent of melon has just filled the polytunnel and it just pours out through the door. And you know the, the enthusiasm of the children around that is just amazing. And then we'll cut it straight away and they can eat it straight away. And you know, that, that experience is amazing. And they're, they're so ripe, they're at peak ripeness. So these are the melon plants over here. Oh, wow. They're really growing. I didn't know you've got to grow melons. Oh yeah, we grow melons every year. In fact, last year we grew them outside because the summer was so hot. And we had a really good harvest. So let's have a quick look, see what we can find. Oh, here we go. There's a little baby melon. 
but just you know introducing them to kind of other things about being outside and sometimes making them feel less nervous about being outside so today we had a really interesting little episode where one of the children spotted a bee in the polytunnel on the melon plant. Well, there's a bee on this one. Oh, oh, show me. Where's the bee? Now, when they first came, they would have been quite nervous of being around a bee, but they were really relaxed about being around the bee. And what they were interested in is what was the bee doing what did it look like, moving leaves oh, to actually get a better look at the bee? No, no, no. So what, what job is the bee doing? Pollinating. Well done, they're pollinating. That's exactly what they're doing. So he's in and he's moving across the flowers and he's spreading the pollen around and that's what's going to make the melons um, grow. I think the main thing is to really involve them in all the different aspects. Now what we need to do now, the tomatoes want to, to push up. They want to, yeah, they want to push out lots of, uh, lots of foliage. But what we want to do is we want all of the energy to go into making tomatoes. So I'm going to show you a little trick. So we're actually going to sort of nip off some little bits of the tomatoes. You can help the child to feel responsible for looking after them. So buy them their own watering can. Like the power of owning a watering can really does rub off in the children being kind of wanting to go and water the plants each day or every you know, couple of days. Would you mind doing some watering in the polytunnel? Because do you remember, it's raining a little bit out here, but of course, because it's enclosed, the plants in here, we have to water ourselves. So if you want to grab a watering can. And things like, so, so children are sometimes interested in like things you might not expect. So to buy a small bottle of plant food, and just the thing about measuring out the plant food and adding it to the watering can, you know, and talking about, you know, the food that we eat and what plants need to grow and that sort of thing. So talking about like the sun and the nutrients and the soil and all that sort of thing. That the children seem to be fascinated by that sort of thing. Aww. That's a radish. Aww. Is it pink and looks, red colour? Uh, so I know what you mean. So that looks, they look very similar to a beetroot. Radishes are really good to grow because they only take about six weeks to grow. So that's something you could probably do on some holidays. So in terms of things to grow as a starter, the kind of things I would think about, first of all, think about things which grow quickly. So there's that sense of reward nice and quickly. And even if it's radishes, which could grow in, like in four to six weeks. And the other thing is things like strawberries. So most children like a strawberry. And so, so things that just you know, can capture their imagination. Uh, not the strawberries, but what will be here? Well, we'll be able to harvest the melons and eat the melons. Eat which melons. Will be amazing. Melons. Um, and then what we'll be able to do as well is um, we can harvest some sweet corn. Sweet corn. We find, and I think like today was a brilliant like, example of the children just being like, so relaxed and confident and willing to ask questions and just try out ideas and ask about things to tell stories as well about things that they're doing at home or things that they've kind of grown or cooked. And Chris, well done. I'm really proud of you today. Good lad. Well done, everyone. I'm real... So there we go. Thank you very much. Rube, thank you. So in terms of having our own allotment, 
apart from having children, I can't think of anything that has had like a bigger impact on the way I am and my life really. So I'm much more chilled than I ever used to be. So I used to be quite like, you know, you know, highly strung and sort of get angry sometimes and that sort of thing. But people say to me, Paul, you're, you're so patient. 20 years ago, that would never have been said about Paul D. Um, it slowed me down a little bit as well. And I think that's added to, you know, the quality of what we're doing with the children as well. So it's given me time to kind of like, you know, think about what's working and just kind of reflect on, like, you know, what's important. Thanks there to Paul. The Hitchin Youth Allotments is a five-star gardening school and was a finalist in the RHS School Gardening Team of the Year in 2018. Paul also runs the North Hertfordshire College Community Allotment, which is featured in the August issue of The Garden magazine. You can find more information about all of this in our show notes. Paul shared some great tips for encouraging a love of gardening in young people. Helping with watering is an activity that children just seem to love. A one-pint milk bottle is such a great mini watering can. Pop a few holes in the lid and voila, it's perfect for small hands and watering seedlings. Growing quick veg like radishes, salad leaves are also really great for giving instant results to children, which is quite important for them. Allow children to choose what they might like to grow, then they're a bit more invested in it. Maybe plan a meal around the food you want to grow, choose something like tomatoes, onions, rocket, and you've got some amazing pizza toppings. And growing food in general is just such a great activity for children. You literally get to see the fruits of your labour. And there's just something really magical about popping a seed in the ground and later on being able to actually harvest something you can eat. Potatoes are a really great one for children too. They won't believe that putting one potato in the ground will just yield many more potatoes later on. And it's really simple to do, even in a small space. If you've got a bag for life, poke some holes in the bottom and you've got a brilliant potato planter. Like the students at Hitchin Youth Allotment, Sarah Gerard-Jones's fascination with plants all began with growing food. My earliest memories of the garden were being with my granddad in his garden in Scotland, which to me seemed magical because there were lots of things to pick and eat. Raspberries, gooseberries, carrots, apples, lettuce. But I particularly loved the peas he grew. I remember my brother and I would gorge on them, eating the entire pod with the juicy sweet peas inside. And at the bottom of the garden, he had beehives, and occasionally he would let us eat the honeycomb, which tasted absolutely amazing. My granddad loved plants and trees, and he is my inspiration. That was Sarah Gerard-Jones, a.k.a. The Plant Rescuer. As we were talking to different gardeners about their earliest memories of gardening, one theme kept coming up time and time again, and that was grandparents. It seems that more often than not, grandparents were really the source of all this amazing knowledge and love and appreciation of plants. When we spoke to Fiona Davidson, head of RHS Libraries and Exhibitions, she said the same. It was a common theme in her historical research into the topic. And one of the things that's really striking is how much People's earliest memories of growing and being in a garden are attached to being taught by a special adult. And very often that will be a grandparent because they've got time and 
you know, interest to spend with little children, teaching them, you know, planting sunflower seeds or cress or, you know, all of these kind of starter plants that people grow up remembering really strongly. Fiona's research went into the current exhibition at the old laboratory at Wisley, which is called Growing Up in the Garden. We chatted with her to get the full picture of how kids have gardened in the past, as well as a behind the scenes look of the exhibit. So the exhibition looks back to kind of pre-industrialised times, you know, before the 1800s, when most children are growing up in the country and most children would have been involved in growing plants somewhere or another, helping their families out. So learning growing skills was a fundamental part of childhood for most people. But if you look at gardening as a leisure activity for children, as something that they might do either for fun or as part of their formal education, then you're really starting with the Victorian era. So as more people moved into cities and started to live an urban lifestyle and more people became a little bit wealthier and started to have this concept of leisure time, this idea that there's time outside work and school where you can do hobbies and leisure activities, gardening became very popular amongst the Victorian middle classes. And that's partly led, as ever, quite often in this country, the royals set the, the fashion. So Queen Victoria got all her children, her many children, miniature garden tools and gave them plots of garden um, at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. And the idea was these little princes and princesses would be taught to garden and they would grow vegetables and flowers and then sell those to the, I don't know, the aristocracy who were visiting the palace and that would gain them pocket money and they would learn, you know, the value of money through learning to garden. And that set a fashion for children to be taught to garden and to grow and so there's a big boom in gardening books for children from the kind of middle of the 19th century onwards. And as you move forward in time into the 20th century what's interesting is gardens are still very much adult spaces, they're ornamental spaces for adults and there are garden games but they're mostly geared around adults, you know, croquet and, and lawn tennis and, and that kind of thing. Children are given garden plots in which they're taught how to garden, but the idea that children would actually play in gardens, when you look at garden design, there's very little evidence. Obviously, children have always had kind of games they'll play and stories they'll tell in outdoor spaces, but there's very little evidence before kind of about the First World War of play equipment in gardens. And now we think of a family garden, you kind of expect there to be a sand pit and, um, well, you know, even a trampoline or a slide and a swing. But that doesn't really come in until, kind of, as I say, around the First World War, and I think you can make a link with traffic. The increased use of cars meant that streets became rapidly seen as less safe places for children to play, and they started to play in their gardens in a kind of safe, car-free zone. You can almost see family gardens as little mini parks, private parks for children and, and one of the interesting things we found researching the exhibition was how garden designers are grappling with this change that, you know, children are becoming part and parcel of a garden and you have to design around them. And we've got lots of quite amusing books from the 1950s and 60s where these garden designers and garden writers are, oh, what are we going to do with these children? They keep trampling all over the plants. And one even suggests that you make a little kind of wire compound to put toddlers in to keep them away from your precious plants. And another who, a garden designer from the 60s, recommends prickly plants, putting a hedge of prickly plants, which he said he selected these plants to protect the uh, Russian embassy in Moscow from 
protesters, so they will definitely work against young children. So as you move on in time, you get closer to now, it's very common to be really concerned about the disconnect between children and nature, and they all spend too much time on their screens and their... But you look back in time, it's not a new thing. So when television first comes, they say, oh, these kids are just watching telly too much. And then before that, it's radio. And before that, it's comics. We've got kind of letters to the garden pressing. These children are, are doing this newfangled thing, reading comics, and they're not learning to grow and they're not outdoors and they don't know anything about birds and flowers and nature. So there's a long-standing kind of worry that children aren't gaining skills. But I think one of the things that I think is reason to be concerned is as you move forward in time you get to kind of present day fewer and fewer children have access to substantial garden spaces and fewer and fewer parents and grandparents are close by and near and have the time to you know spend that time with children in spaces. I think that People are realising that you don't need a huge amount of space for this, that actually the magic of planting a seed and watching it germinate and watching it grow together, you know, you can do that with a window box. And the fascination of seeing something burst into life from a tiny seed is still there for anyone. You don't need acres and acres and you don't need to be Queen Victoria and give your children their own plot and their own miniature wheelbarrows and things. You can still get that kind of gardening fix in a small space. So there's lots of ideas for how to do that. One of the things we looked at was, is there consistency through time in the plants that people recommend that children grow? And there absolutely is because there's some kind of you know, annuals that grow from seed and germinate reliably and quickly and give you spectacular, colourful results quickly within one growing season. That's there forever. But when you go really back in time to the Victorians, you do see they were, you know, kind of strangely ambitious on what they suggested kids should try and grow, like azaleas and rhododendrons and things, which is that's a demanding a huge amount of patience from most children. I think stick with the sunflower seeds would be my recommendation of some nasturtiums or something easy. Gertrude Jekyll, who's way better qualified than me to talk about gardening, she said it's asking too much. It's really asking too much of most children to have the patience to build a garden from scratch. Give them a garden you've already created and let them, you know, kind of play in it and grow in it where the bones of it are already there. Don't give them a bare patch of earth and say, make a garden. It's too much for most children. I think she's very wise there. Thanks there to Fiona. The Growing Up in the Garden exhibition at Wisley will be open until the 13th of September, and you can find the details on how to visit in our show notes. Fiona mentioned how, with the advent of cars, gardens couldn't just be beautiful and ornamental spaces, but also had to become places for kids to play. And there's nothing to say the two can't work together. Giving children a space of their own to experiment in, dig in, could really foster an appreciation of the space. And you can position any play equipment near robust plants such as heathers, lamb's ears, cat mint, and it might just save your prize roses from being demolished. And finally, for our last feature, let's head to the garden of the legendary Roy Lancaster, to hear all about the discovery that launched his career. But at that time, I had no particular interest in gardens. I was aware of plants, but no more than any other child might be at that age, my early years. And my first interest was in birds. 
and I became a very keen bird watcher. And when I went to my school, age now, I suppose 13, I found myself sitting next to another boy who became my best pal, who also was keen on birds. And the two of us used to go off on bird watching tours and trips and went all over locally and further afield. And we were always hoping we might see something new, something different, something special. And that's not unusual in a child's mind. And then one day, we were returning from a trip locally. We'd been to a reservoir where we, in the past we'd seen some interesting birds, birds of passage. We hadn't seen anything. We hadn't seen any bird of particular interest. And so we were returning and we were feeling a bit down. Oh, I haven't seen a bird. I haven't seen an interesting or a new bird. You know, this you can get sort of fixed on seeing something new all the time when you're not noticing the familiar and you don't really know anything about the familiar because you think, well, that's common. So I started thinking, well, hang on. What are these grasses that we're walking through? The purple moor grass in the Pennines where we lived form hummocks. You either walk between them or you walk on top of them. I've done it so many times, I don't know what it is. And so I started asking that question. And at the same time, with the two of us joined a local natural history society called the Bolton Field Naturalists. And there were mainly older people, many of them retired members, and they used to have lectures in the winter months in the Civic Hall in Bolton and in the spring-summer months and, and autumn too, for that matter. They'd have excursions, rambles, as we call them, with an expert, a Mr Jackson, his name was, coming with us, and he'd be pointing at all the plants growing in the canal, their names, and he'd be given us the English name, so that one's Flowering Rush, and that's the floating pond weed. So I used to enjoy those summer trips, and he always used to point out the plants to me, and he tested me, and I had to try and remember. And at the beginning, I couldn't, and these were just English names, not the Latin names. And then he gave me a copy of The Floor of Bolton. It was just a list of names with brief descriptions, of all the plants that were found within maybe a th three mile radius of Bolton Town Hall. And I started underlining and ticking them as I saw them. And it got to the stage over the years where I was also adding new ones. I was finding new records for Bolton. And it's while out on a, one of the walks in the country, and we've been looking at the different birds and things, we were walking past some allotments where people grew vegetables and things. And as we walked, I was looking over the fence, I don't know why, but, and I saw a plant growing there, which I didn't recognize. Why should I? I, I knew the names of a few plants other than British native flowers, common wildflowers. And I thought, I what that is. So I climbed over and it was growing as a weed. And I picked a piece and it was very sticky and the green flowers, strange looking thing. I brought it back to school. We only had a few books there on plants and it wasn't mentioned there. 
So I took it to another man who'd become a real mentor of mine over the years, who was in charge of the Bolton Museum, the Natural History Museum, and Mr. Hazelwood. And I showed it to him, and he got all these big, fat, fancy books out, Floras of Britain and Floras of this and that. He couldn't find this about mentioned at all. So he sent it to a professor at the biology department of the nearby University of Manchester. She replied that she couldn't identify it, so she sent it to someone at the British Museum in London, the Natural History Museum. Well, to me, you know, London, that could have been another planet. I never, I hadn't been out of our county, Lancashire, let alone the south of England and London. And so imagine my surprise when I received a letter addressed to Mr. Roy Lancaster, Esquire. I thought, oh, God, what's all this? And it was a letter from this boffin, some professor at the British Museum Natural History, to say that my plant was a Mexican tobacco plant. And this was not only the very first record of this plant appearing in Lancashire, it was only the second record for the whole of Britain. Congratulations. I thought, oh, wow. And of course, the tobacco, the, he actually gave me the Latin name, which I didn't know, Nicotiana rustica, which is one of the ancient tobaccos originated in the Andes. So the question asked of me in the local newspaper, the Bolton Evening Express, how did it get here? If it came not from Mexico, or even it did come from Mexico, but possibly Peru. How did it arrive here in Bolton on an allotment? It wasn't sown there, it wasn't grown there. We never knew. But I got to thinking that if I could find something without even looking for it, something so special, maybe I should really start looking harder and I might find other things. And so plants came into my life in a big way. Thanks there to Roy. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, we couldn't end the episode without a short garden to-do list. So here's Chief Horticulturist Guy Barter with advice on what you can get up to in the garden this week. It's late July, going on August, and it's high summer. And I'm standing here in my greenhouse in my garden, down near the railway tracks, a few trains thundering by every few minutes on their way into Waterloo. Really, this is a time to relax. Everything's done now. There's only six weeks left of the growing season, so hopefully everything's planted, it's watered, it's fed. It's a great time to take cuttings as well to keep over winter in a greenhouse cold frame or even a windowsill for plants for next year. It's nice to go out and visit gardens too and see what's growing and looking good elsewhere, making some notes of things to acquire over the winter or in the late summer flower shows. Weeds are still existing. Most gardens have been well weeded already, but it only takes 2% of weeds to survive to make the problem worse, not better. So go through with a bucket and gloved hand and pull out any larger weeds that are about to set seed. And it's also time for summer pruning. Shortening those whippy wisteria shoots is a high priority. Any summer flowering shrubs like Philadelphus that have not yet been pruned, it's great to prune those, taking out the older wood and leaving younger wood to flower next year. That's all for now. So from me, Alana Karma, goodbye and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.